And if you'd have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 10, we will reference Matthew 6. When we read the first two lines of uh, Mark 10:17, and he, meaning Jesus, was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him, we immediately recognize this scenario because it's happened so many times. It happens quite frequently in the Bible, and we've run across it a number of times in Mark. People come and they fall at Jesus' feet with such frequency, we just kind of hardly give it much attention. Mark chapter 1, you might remember in verse 40, the leper coming and Jesus reaching out and touching the leper and healing him. You'll remember in Mark chapter 2, the, the men came carrying the paralytic and they dropped the paralytic in front of him. And the man's sins were forgiven and he walked away. Legion, remember him? He, we, we go across the Sea of Galilee and Jesus gets out of the boat and this man's racing towards Jesus. And he is rewarded his sanity. Mark chapter 5, you remember Jairus comes, this important synagogue ruler who has a sick daughter. And while Jesus is going towards his house, the bleeding woman, the, the woman who'd been suffering for many years, uh, reaches out and touches the cloak of Jesus. And she's healed, and Jairus' daughter is healed. Most of us remember the Syrophoenician woman, this woman who comes begging Jesus for some sort of favor to heal her daughter. And uh, she's called a dog in some sense. We talked about that. And she's just looking for a little crumb from Jesus. And she gets it. Her daughter is healed. So when we read Mark 10, 17, and the man runs up and falls at Jesus' feet, we have this condition and we have this momentum that's built up, this expectation of exactly what's going to happen in this particular situation. However, uh, something very surprising happens here. Of all the people who come and fall at Jesus' feet, this man leaves worse than he came. It's very unusual. In fact, if you look at the corresponding passage in Matthew 19, uh, Matthew starts out by saying, Behold! And it's kind of this signal world to say, Pay attention now. This is something different. You're going to want to lean forward. You're going to want to see this dialogue. You're going to hear what happens. And so we need to take note of what happens here. And it's important that we keep our eyes and ears open to this dialogue between Jesus and this man about eternal life. The man has so many positive qualities. I think he would be a likable kind of person when you read the account. And he gets so incredibly close, it seems, to the kingdom of God, and yet he walks away sad. Let's pray together. Lord, we, um, we need to hear and heed these words. It, we're, we're, first of all, we're not able to see unless you enable us to see. We, we can just blankly stare at words on a page just like we were reading the newspaper. If it's not for the, the power of the Holy Spirit coming in and scales falling off our eyes, blindness leaving, and, and suddenly we see. 
And that's what we need. And then we need to have the courage to follow after what we see. May we not become so terribly close to the kingdom of God and walk away like this man did. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start with the text. We look at the text and we commonly know about this man. It's probably some kind of heading in your book. The rich young ruler. He's rich. We know that from verse 22. He has. We know he leaves Jesus. One of the reasons why is because he has these, this great inheritance. He has a, a great possession. He has a great estate. In verse 22, he's young. We read that in Matthew 19. And he's some kind of ruler, corresponding passage in Luke 18. We're not sure if he's a synagogue ruler or he's just somebody in the community that's a ruler. But here he is. He's the rich young ruler. And there's the usual talk about the emphasis on from the the worldly perspective, this man has everything that he needs. But I, I just sat this week in my office and I tried to ponder the, the, the real encounter that was happening here. We think of it as the rich young ruler meets Jesus. Jesus the, the carpenter. Jesus the one born in a stable. The, Jesus the one who has no place to rest his head. But, but this rich young ruler comes and he meets Jesus, the Christ. And I just tried to think about what was happening on, a, on another plane. This little tiny man walks up to Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn over all creation. By Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, things that are visible, things that are invisible, whether throne or powers or rulers. This, this little rich young man comes up to the person through all things were created, to the person by all things were created by him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the beginning. He is the first more among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ. And so I just tried to try to grapple with the reality of what's taking place. The the rich young ruler meets Christ, and I just couldn't think of, of, of terms that were extreme enough. And so what I came up with is it's, it's like a little piece of, of plankton that's measured in microns coming up to the blue whale. You, you can't even see the piece of plankton. And this rich young ruler who's rich on this level, he swims up in all of his wealth next to the blue whale, 400,000 pounds and 200 feet long. Or, or a little grain of sand being swept up next to the Sears Tower. That's the reality, the massive reality of what's taking place in this text. So that the the wealth and the wisdom 
and the riches completely overshadow, completely dominate whatever the rich young ruler has. It just obliterates what he has. And the, the stunning message of the Gospel, the, the unbelievable message of the Gospel, is that God comes down in all of His wisdom and all of His wealth and He looks at us face to face and his, He doesn't obliterate us. He doesn't overwhelm us. He appears to be somebody you can just come up and have a conversation with. But God Almighty comes down and He's getting as far down as He can to get to this tiny little speck of a person and having a dialogue about eternal life with Him. And the man is able to have a dialogue just like you and I might have a dialogue about eternal life. The Gospel is that God has reduced Himself onto our level without obliterating us and does give us hope for eternal life. If you're a Narnian fan, and you should be if you're here, it's a good Christmas gift if you don't have one. Lucy in the last battle. Remember how Lewis just puts these words so well into her mouth? She says this, A stable once had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. You see, the reality is that this rich young ruler was face to face with somebody who was bigger than the whole universe. And he had no concept of it. And he's asking, the little plankton is asking the blue whale, how do I get some more mass? I'm missing something. And it appears as if you have it. Can we have a dialogue about eternal life? That, that's something of what's happening here. What we learn also about the man from verse 17 is that he comes with some kind of urgency. He's running and he's kneeling before Christ. He's urgent and he's humble. Men, especially Jewish men, Jewish rulers, would not run. That's what's so remarkable about the story of the prodigal son, that the, the father would run towards the son. That's just not dignified. And so he runs in some sort of earnestness and humility. All the advantages that this man has, he has some sense that they're just not quite enough. This echo of Ecclesiastes 1.16 Look, I have grown and I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much wisdom and knowledge. And, and then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom. I applied myself also to madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. So this man had some sense that he keeps trying to grasp hold of something and it's like chasing after the wind, Augustine in his familiar quote says, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, 
and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. We also learn that the man comes to the right person. He comes to the good teacher, Jesus. He's not going to another source, at least at this point. And he's asking the right question. What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as I thought about this little verse here and the setup for the story, I, I just kept concluding that this guy was, um, let's say, a hot prospect for the kingdom of God. I mean, how many conversations have you been in with people about the kingdom of God that there, there's an urgency they're kneeling. They're asking the right questions. They're, they're coming and asking about Jesus. I mean, I just didn't get into those conversations very easily. But this man already comes all the way down the line. And it just seems like this man is, is going to get into the kingdom. I mean, anyone can bring this man into the kingdom, right? Except for Jesus. And I just kind of scratching my head saying, did Jesus just not do well on Evangelism 101 seminar? I mean, did he just miss sort of the key component there? When you get, when you get the person all the way down to that point, it's just the, this is what you do. You, you get this person to decide to follow Christ. You get them to sign a card or walk an aisle or say a prayer and then they're in. They've decided. It's just not that complicated. And what I'm concerned about is that's the way we often hear it and maybe even present it. Is that all you need to do is just to make a decision. And apparently that's not what Jesus is only after. He's not after decision evangelism. We're looking at the text and our whole series is about discipleship. He's not interested in people just believing some piece of information. He's asking them to believe a piece of information and then follow. To be disciples. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission is to go and make people make decisions. No, it's, it's to go and make disciples. In Mark 8, immediately when Jesus says to Peter and the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Jesus doesn't say, that's it, you're in. What does He say? Okay, now now that you've got that information, come closely. If you, now, now that you know to really be My disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. You see, Satan knows all the right information and he believes it. But he has no interest in denying himself. So just to walk forward and make a decision is not the kind of discipleship evangelism that Christ is after. My guess is somebody could have sort of closed the deal on this guy if they were just interested in a decision. But since Jesus isn't just interested in the decision, He's interested in discipleship, He has to help this guy understand who He really is before He can decide and then begin to walk 
as Jesus would want him to walk. Dallas Willard says this in his book called The Great Omission, which is about missing the missing plan of discipleship in our culture. To enter that radiant life, we must ask, am I a disciple or only a Christian by current standards? Examination of our ultimate desires and intentions reflected in the specific responses and choices that make up our lives can show whether there are things we would hold more important than being like Him. Last sentence. Dare I tell people as, quote, believers without discipleship that they are at peace with God and God with them? You know, there, there, there might be churches full of people that believe that they're at peace with God and God is with them just because they decided. But their life reflects nothing about discipleship. And I think Jesus is getting to that point in this text. Verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, there's quite a bit of discussion as to what Jesus is trying to lead this man to see. But I think we can just say with confidence, because I don't want to say too much here, is that at least Jesus is pointing out that no one except God is good. At least we can be confident of that. Nobody is good except God. And the reason that needs to be emphasized is because you get into conversations every week and I get into conversations every week and people will say this if you get into a spiritual conversation, but I'm a good person or they're a good person. And what you can say with confidence is what Jesus has said. Not You don't have to make this up. Jesus has clearly said, no one is good except for God. So unless you're speaking with God, the person is not good. Now, they may be good on some horizontal plane. They're a good Boy Scout or a Girl Scout. They help the poor. They help people across the road. That kind of stuff. That's fine. But what Jesus is talking about is our vertical relationship with God. And nobody is good. And this man thinks he's good enough. Or he's wondering if there's just one more rung he can put on his ladder and finally get to the top. And Jesus is clearly saying, nobody is going to inherit eternal life by being good. You could inherit eternal life by being good if you could be good, but the problem is you can't be good. So you've got to look for something else. And Jesus is the answer to that. Jesus does an interesting thing here. He points in verse 19, he points the man to the law. How do I, inter how do I inherit eternal life? Well, look, you know the commandments. And he lists what sometimes is called the, the second table of the law. The all the love your neighbor as yourself commandments. The first tablet or the the first part of that is often required, thought of as the, the first tablet is your relationship to God. The second part of this law is referring to loving your neighbor as yourself. So he just points out those 
pieces for him. Jesus is trying to use the law to help this man see that he's blind. The, the man comes and he's saying to Jesus in some sense, I believe I'm leading a straight life. I'm attempting to be good enough. And what does Jesus the carpenter do? What if you're a carpenter? What do you pull out to see if you've got a straight line? You pull out some kind of level or some kind of square. And every line, even though you may look at it, looks pretty straight. When you put the law up to a life, then you realize, well, now I've got a lot of this in my life. And so Jesus is saying, the law here, as Paul says in Romans 5, is meant to help highlight your inadequacy. That's the purpose of the law. Or one of the purposes of the law is to highlight or strengthen your understanding of who you are or who you're not. Sin has entered the world and one of its blinding effects is this. That people truly believe that they're okay. People really believe I'm okay. And without Christ, what you can observe is the effects of sin in a statement like that. That's somebody who is blind. They're, they're telling you what they see. It's just that they don't see things accurately. And Jesus is pulling out the square. He's pulling out the level and saying, no, let's judge it based on what God has to say. The people that think that they're okay believe that they can earn eternal life. If you inherit something, it's not something that you've earned. Somebody else has done it for you and they're giving it to you as a gift. They've done all the work for it. It's an inheritance. And so Jesus is helping this man see that there's nothing he can do to earn it. He must inherit it. And the law is coming and making this man's picture of himself smaller and smaller and smaller so that he might be able to see Christ as not just a good teacher, but God Almighty. But this man has some sense that he's here and Jesus is maybe just a little above him. And Jesus is saying, no, let me help, this, help the law to see that you're here and I'm infinitely great. Jesus in verse 20, unbelievably, the man thinks he's been at least good enough on these second tablet laws. And so he moves forward and he opens his eyes to the first part. I don't think the man was arrogant. I mean, I don't see that in the text. He's, he's run to Jesus. He's kneeling before him. He's asking the right questions. He just is blind. He just thinks he's doing a good enough job. So Jesus pulls out the first commandment. And let me just note here before I move to that point, Jesus' response to this man. The man thinks he's got it all right. And then what does the text say? He looks at the man. Then what? He loves the man. 
And then what? He speaks the truth to the man. He's looking at the man. He's loving the man. And he's speaking the truth to this man. I might have just said something like this. (laughs) You think you got it all right? Come on. What idiot would think that? Well, there's a real good evangelistic tool. That really moves you down the dialogue trail when you say that to somebody. But what does Jesus do? First of all, He looks at him. He looks at him. And He doesn't just look at him. He loves the man. He doesn't think he's a fool. He doesn't call him a blind idiot. And then He speaks the truth. I remember this so poignantly when I I was doing this ministry, Young Life. we, We would have high school students on a floor in a, in a gym or in a house or something. And the person who taught me how to lead high school students in singing, which was quite uh, funny to watch me do that, because I can't clap and keep my rhythm at the same time. So I'm just not, that's not my gift. So he would really try to help me with this. And this is what he'd say, Paul, when you're, they're all sitting on the floor, you're standing practically right on top of them. He'd say, when you're helping them sing, you, you're, you, you've got your arms out like this and look at them in the face. Don't just look out there sort of blindly. Look at them in the face. And when, when you're helping them to sing, say, come on, let's sing. You have your hands out and you look at them and you tell them by your look, I love you. Do you see that in my look? Do you see that in my personality? And then when you're done singing, stand up and tell them the truth about the Gospel. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's looking at this man. He's got His arms out to this man and saying, I love you. And I'm going to look at you in the face and I'm going to tell you the truth about the Gospel. And I wonder if that is what marks us in our dialogues with people about Christ. Are you really looking at people? And are you looking at them and you're just speaking the truth? That doesn't go very far. Are you just loving the person, but you never tell them the truth about the Gospel? There's so many ways to get off here. But Jesus looks at the man. He loves the man. And He's going to tell him the truth. And the truth is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before Me. And the man is pierced. He understands now that he's missed the mark. And I wonder why this man was not able to see this. I mean, he comes, he comes to Jesus, right? And he's saying, I'm missing something. That's why he's here. And Jesus points it out to him. That's fine. But why couldn't the man see this? He was somewhat familiar with the Testament, the, the laws. But he couldn't see it. The reason is his wealth. 
Look back with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're not surprised because this is exactly the effect that Jesus said wealth would have on everyone. Wealth has this effect. It blinds you to understanding what reality is. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out in Matthew chapter 6. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. All those things are going to be destroyed. And, and then he says, verse, and then he says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he either will hate one or love the other, and he will be devoted to one and despise the other. But in verse 22 and 23, he gives this little picture. He's saying, it's like this. The eye is a lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And Jesus is saying here that wealth has a shockingly blinding effect on humanity. First of all, it blinds you into believing that you're wealthy. Because all you have to do, and you've done it this many times, I'm certain, I'm not really that wealthy, but Paul, I can tell you who is. And you're very easily able to point to someone else and say, I'm just kind of a regular guy. But wow, those people are wealthy. It blinds you to that. The second effect is it blinds you to thinking that you're greedy. I'm not greedy. I can show you plenty of people that are. It blinds you. Jesus talks more about the effect of money and your eternal destiny of your soul than He does almost anything else. But as a pastor, I can have streams of people coming in my office who are talking about very serious issues in their life. But nobody talks about their wealth. Why? They don't think they have a problem with it. Wealth has blinded them to thinking that it's really a problem in their lives. Wealth blinds people into thinking that they have possessions. This is mine. I know it's mine. It's got my name on it. Two kids are arguing in the house. What's the argument? It's mine! And you think it's yours. I've used this illustration a couple of times. So perfect. I take Zachary to the store. Zachary, would you like one of the candies in the aisle? I don't do this very often. Sure, Dad. So I buy some M&M's because I really want the M&M's. It's just good for me to have him buy them and I'll take a few of his. I buy them. I give them to him. He opens them up. I say, son, can I have one? What's he say? It's mine! I just bought it for you! But that's what we think. Wealth has a blinding effect. We don't think it's a problem for us. And here this man is blinded to thinking he's good enough. And what's blinded him? His wealth. And you know it's blinded him because it's his problem. And Jesus points it out to him. And the sobering reality of this passage in Matthew 6 is that if this one area 
in your life is bad. Your whole life is bad. You see that? If your eye is bad, you have problems all throughout your body. If you're blind in this one area, you might be blind in every other area of your life and you don't know it. And this man's a perfect example of it. The rich young man went away sorrowful. Verse 22. He understood that he came for eternal life. He, he came terribly, terribly close. And he left without it. It's, again, like the plankton swims up to the whale and says, how can I, how can I get to whatever you have? I, I'm so small, I need something. And the whale who's immeasurable, endless, colossal, incalculable, infinite, Weight of eternal wealth and glory offers it to the little plankton and says, You can have it all! You can have something that you can't possibly calculate. It's beyond the scope of your understanding. And the little plankton says, I kind of like what I've got. And he swims back away from this colossal offer. And it would be laughable if it weren't so common. It might be some of us right here. We think we're okay, but we're blinded. See, Jesus just isn't interested in whether you've made a decision. He's interested in whether you're willing to be a disciple. And in case you don't know what discipleship is all about, and you don't really know the price He's asking of you, there's just no better place to see it. Because what does he say? You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. Where's he going? He's going to give up. All that He has to give it to you. The God of the universe has looked down. Has come down in love. And He's speaking the truth. 
if you have any interest in eternal life. This is the only way. But it's not just a decision. It's this is the way. You must be willing to give up your life now. You must deny yourself things in this world. But for what? For a colossal inheritance that we couldn't possibly measure. Take a few minutes to consider the condition of our own souls. Paul warns the people in Corinth not to come forward lightly. It's, it's not for perfect people because then no one could come. But it's not just for people who have made a decision. It's for people who are willing to be disciples. It's for the fallen, but it's not for the fake. Lord, I pray that You would bless these elements with the grace that I've tried to communicate. Incalculable. Unmeasurable. We're so easily entangled with things of this world. Myself included. Trapped and tripped up by things that are going to be obliterated. We spend more time thinking about our hair, our television shows, been pondering the wealth available for those who are in Christ. God, help us, we pray.